This episode of the Supply Chain Brain podcast is supported by Locus Robotics, creator of autonomous mobile robots for optimizing fulfillment and boosting warehouse productivity. Be sure and stick around after the discussion for a look at the company and what it offers to customers. But now, on to the podcast. Can you motivate warehouse workers by making the job a game? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The notion of gamification has been with us for some time now. It's long been popular in psychology and the social sciences, and no wonder. We live in a culture that's game-crazy. Of course, the traditional idea of a game is associated with the word play, but can it be applied to work as well? On this episode, I discuss gamification in the workplace, specifically the warehouse, with Karen Levitt, Chief Marketing Officer with Locus Robotics. We'll learn what the word means in a professional setting and how it's being applied to boost worker productivity. And we'll talk about how employers can frame the concept in a way that workers won't feel they're being spied on, pushed to meet onerous performance standards, or being, well, gamed. So here is my conversation with Karen Levitt. Karen Levitt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking today about extending worker productivity through the use of robotics and especially gamification, which is a fascinating way to approach this issue. So I want to ask you, first of all, when you even use the term gamification, what do you mean by it? It's a great question. I am thinking about a panel discussion at Modex a couple of weeks ago Deloitte hosted a panel on productivity, and they mentioned a statistic that I thought was really interesting. I hadn't heard it before. They said for the first time in history, there are five generations of workers in the workplace. Everybody from recently graduated college students and perhaps even younger to post-retirees who've returned to the workplace because labor is in such short supply. And they're looking at different ways of how you engage these workers at different levels. I think over the last decade or so, we've seen the tactics and techniques that younger generations tend to employ to stay engaged start to enter different work practices. And when we think about gamification, we think about how you can take tasks that may be repetitive, a little bit boring, and turn them into something that takes on a higher purpose, or at least a different purpose, where you're creating engagement for something where engagement might otherwise be difficult or challenging, and then further challenging those workers to exceed even their own expectations by striving to reach a a different outcome, a win, if you will, in the sense Mm -hmm. of playing a game. 
What kind of game? Is it basically just reaching certain productivity targets? Is that it? I mean, what form does this game take in a workplace? Well, I think it could take any number of games. So it could be playing against yourself, for example, constantly striving to achieve new levels of productivity to beat your all-time best every day you go out there. That can be one thing. Another can be engaging in team competition. One of the interesting challenges when you start to implement gamification, if you have employees competing against one another, sometimes that can be motivational, but sometimes it can be demotivational. If you have a top employee who's always going to be the best, in the case of what I do, the best warehouse picker on the floor, it may never be possible for any but one or two other employees to challenge that top-ranked individual. But if instead you set up team competitions, I sort of liken it to having a golf scramble where you can have Mm -hmm. an A, a B, a C, and a D player on each team, then at any given moment, any team can win. And so there's setting up competition against one another, there's competing against yourself, and then There's competing for actual monetary prizes in the form of compensation. So we have customers who will compensate their workers based on hitting certain targets. And if people achieve certain levels of productivity, the worker will find that their hourly rate has increased by, say, 50 cents an hour, or there'll be bonuses based on that. So it could be a competition for almost anything that motivates the worker to reach those new levels of productivity. Who would decide the composition of the teams? Would the company itself assign them based on its understanding of who is A, B, C, and D, or would you give that decision to the workers themselves? You could do it either way, or you can let a third methodology apply, which is poker players would say the cards speak. Instead of anybody making a decision which may have some subjective components to it, you could simply say, all right, we're going to let the observed performance numbers based on hundreds or thousands of picks determine how people get broken down into groups and then take one player from each group to participate. Or you could decide to do it at a management level where you could consciously decide that you're going to make mentoring pairs among people and say, all right, we know we've got this very experienced worker. Let's pair that person with this specific new worker where we think that they're simpatico in some way and get them working together in order to raise the productivity of the entire team. Certainly wouldn't want to leave it up to the employees. For those of us who have still have memories of being picked last for sports teams in, <laughs> in high school and the like, that would definitely be a demoralizing type a of experience, wouldn't it? Yes. It's a good point. Okay, so this is not really a new concept. I mean, I have been in factories where they did have like color-coded teams and at the end of each row of sewing machines, you would see like statistics for that row for all to see and then there was some competitive aspect to it. So what's the new angle on this? Is it the fact that a younger group of workers is coming into the workforce that is more open to this type of thing? Is it a technology play? What makes it now fresh and interesting to address this issue now? Yeah, it's a great question. Sort of the answer is kind of all of the above. I think we've got a number of different things that, first of all, the platform that can be used to apply the gamification features has migrated to a technology platform. So instead of 
having the, the cards at the end of the sewing machine row updated at the end of the day, we now have real-time statistics that are getting fed back to each worker in real time on individual touchscreens, for example, mm-hmm. that we are putting up monitors throughout the facility that, again, allow the workers to see not even just their own personal productivity statistics, but what the statistics are for the entire operation. So they can see how the work that they do contributes to the outcome for the entire organization and contributes to the success of that organization. We're also making sure that the adjustments are happening, as I said, in real time. And I think that's a big difference because it allows people to feel that they have a hand in this instead of it being where I think in the past may often have been perceived as more of a big brother type of operation, that people were watched over to make sure that they were making the grade as opposed to people who are seeing it as an interactive, real-time coaching opportunity and striving to be better out of their own self-motivated reasons. That's a fine line, because I could see a worker saying, I can see right through this. I can see that this is merely an excuse to do exactly what you just described, to create a big brother type of environment where we're watching you all the time, but we're pretending it's a game. And maybe we'll use the lowest productivity levels to fire the workers who aren't up to scratch. Maybe we'll use this to impose a series of labor standards based on our expectation of productivity, which workers would not necessarily want, although that's sort of comes with the territory sometimes. How do you navigate that very fine line? Mm -hmm. It's a really good point. To be honest, I think that's a line that operators are navigating today. Workers are very much aware of the fact that they're competing for the positions that they have. There's so much temporary labor in the warehouse, and those workers often know that the excellent will get offered a full-time position, and the bottom tier of performance workers may not be offered a longer-term assignment. But I think generally people want to succeed, and I think that there is an element in it of trust, of the workers being able to get the feedback so that they can improve on it, get the coaching integrated in the feedback tools, so it's done more as a motivational helping tool rather than as a punitive stick. There are carrots involved along every step of the way, as opposed to sticks that may come only at the end of the game to find out how you did later, as opposed Mm -hmm. to how you're doing now and encouraging you to improve. Now, you mentioned that there are five generations working in the workforce today which creates the situation that the acceptability by each of those generations to this whole concept is going to vary widely. As you point out, the youngest may find it the most fun, the most acceptable. The older ones are going to grumble and push back and the like. So how do you make sure that given the wide variance of ages in the workforce today that you get widespread acceptance of this whole thing? The thing about trying to improve human productivity when you're talking about collaborative technologies is if you want to make the humans better, how you interact with the humans matters a lot. It's really critical that the technology that's being employed for that in that collaboration be something that facilitates increases in human productivity and is not a hindrance to them. I would say when I heard that statistic about five generations in the workplace, the first image I got was, 
I thought of the one place, the one retail environment where you see five generations of consumers standing side by side. And that's an Apple store. When you walk into an Apple store, if, I know you can't walk into one right now because <laughs> of the current shutdown. But when you walk into an Apple store, it's really the one place where you can see eight-year-olds next to 18-year-olds next to 80-year-olds all mm -hmm. using the same technology. And Apple figured out how to come up with a technology with universal appeal rather than trying to train the humans how to use the technology. They trained the technology to work for any human. And that's really mm. the approach that we've adopted as well. In fact, we use iPads on our robots. That's really no accident, but because people know how to use them. They have become second nature, regardless of your age, regardless of your stage of, of life or your experience in the workplace. And so using these tools that people are already familiar with makes the work of understanding and adapting to a new environment almost transparent. Yeah, but the speed of adaptability to the acceptance to the whole idea of new technology certainly does vary by generation. I mean, we old people grumble all the time about that, whereas you can go to an Apple store, as I have in the past, seen like a two-year-old child just flying away on a tablet, and whereas older people would say, well, maybe I'll eventually get around to accepting this. So would not the same thing happen in a workplace in terms of how fast you can get the different generations to sign on to the concept? Well, sure. What's the old expression that new technology is anything invented after the year I was born? But there again, I think we have seen the adoption of certain technologies become universal. I remember back in my younger days of working with computers back in the early 80s when the PC first came out and you'd have every mother and grandmother would say, oh, you know computers. The advice back then, much like the, the Dustin Hoffman plastics line, was go learn computers. Well, but mm -hmm. you never heard anybody say, go learn toasters, go learn microwaves. Appliances just become naturally adopted and understood as something that's intended to achieve an end rather than an end in themselves. And I think that's what's so critical is making use of technology that people see as a means to accomplish something rather than as a hindrance or a hurdle that they have to invest time in understanding. And we've really tried to adopt those practices in what we do. And again, by choosing a tool that has now received such universal appeal and understanding has hastened that journey for our customers because the users really do understand how to use it. Yes, sure, there's still going to be that difference between the five-year-old and the 85-year-old, but I think we're seeing through society that these tools are becoming fairly universally understood. My mom is using one, so I guess that's, that's, mm -hmm. the, uh, the, that's the, benchmark. the best indicator I, I got mm -hmm. for that. Okay, but the question, another question I have, though, is that I can imagine implementing a system like this in a workplace, and it's really exciting on day one, and it's really fun, mm. and it's really fun for a while, and then it goes on, and I wonder if there's a point at which workers kind of get tired of it. How, how do you prevent that from happening? How do you keep it fresh over a long period of time? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the way to do that is to keep the solution itself, the system itself learning to keep the system 
feeding those learnings back to the workers and also allowing the workers to have a voice, whether it's an active or a passive voice, in determining how the solution itself advances the ball to keep it interesting. So what we see is we see workers who, once they start to use the new solution, we see them offering suggestions for how it could make their life easier. And then when those suggestions are actually implemented in the solution, they feel that they're part of it. And it really encourages further feedback loops. We see people making choices about how they're going to improve their own productivity, things that might not even have occurred to us, just because people will often naturally adapt to the most efficient ways of doing things. And then we'll plow those things back into the operation of the solution itself, or we'll create dashboards specifically as a result of having observed behavior on the part of workers. And then there are, of course, things external to the product that can be done as well. There can be all kinds of different forms of recognition. And sometimes the best recognition is very simple. We have customers who will allow their workers to name the robots, for example, or they create team building activity Mm -hmm. to do with the robots. And that just keeps everybody engaged and remembering that they're, again, all in this together. I think one of the most important things we've seen in general has been the sense of team spirit that we see emerging in these warehouses where the workers become less isolated, if you will. It's no longer a worker is chained to a single cart that she's pushing through the warehouse for 15 miles a day. The workers are interacting with many robots and there's just kind of an unwritten sense that we're all in this together to try and achieve an end. And I think the best warehouse operators are constantly recognizing the contributions of their workers and recognizing that it's the humans in the warehouse that are contributing to their growth and success. Karen, tell me the story of Locus Robotics. When was it formed and what was it out to do from day one? So Locus is still a very young company. We sprang from the world we now serve. Our founders had a 3PL business and were one of the early customers for Kiva systems. And when Amazon purchased Kiva back in 2012, the writing was on the wall that this groundbreaking technology was going to be taken off the market. And so our founders set out to try to find a replacement and eventually decided to create that replacement rather than put their eggs into yet another technology basket. So they developed their own robotics technology, spent a couple of years of developing that in stealth mode, We had very supportive investors at that time. And then in 2015, late 2015, Locus was spun out and incorporated as an independent company. So our DNA really is the same DNA as as the customers we serve, that 3PL warehouse DNA. And the solution was purpose-built to be able to work in a fulfillment warehouse. It's a very specific type of robot. Can you describe it to us? You're exactly right. It's a very specific type of robot 
or at least it was designed as a very specific type of robot initially, although today it's emerging more and more as a platform. And I think as it continues to mature, we'll start to see more use cases emerge. But yes, it was designed very specifically to work in peace handling warehouses, warehouses whose large-scale labor problem is dependent on piece picking and put away of merchandise, typically that's going to be fulfilled on either a direct consumer or a retail store replenishment or a direct to point of use environment. What does that mean? Our customers are e-commerce companies that sell apparel directly to consumers or ship it to retail stores. But we also have customers who are shipping very non-consumer things, pharmaceuticals and medical devices for use in hospitals or automotive parts to repair centers and automotive dealers. So it doesn't have to be a direct-to-consumer item, but the unifying feature is that all of these are items that are picked one at a time or in small quantities and shipped out to their destination, typically with overnight or the next couple of days delivery. And so that's the use case that we built it for. Where's it going? Where's the technology going? How might these robots look different in years to come? What what more might they be doing? The sky's the limit, Bob. Our robots have moved from doing piece picking to put away and shelf replenishment. But I think we're going to start to see robots in a lot more environments. We'll start to see robots operating in perhaps hospital environments, healthcare environments to transport goods there or in manufacturing environments. Again, not for the purpose of doing the manufacturing as you might see in the automotive industry, but for the purpose of transporting parts and so forth. So we're going to see them, I think, overlap into different use cases. And then eventually, I think we'll even start to see them in a retail environment where they might assist shoppers in a retail store. We're all getting used to these days having people help us pick our groceries while we stay home and quarantined. But we might start to see robots assisting us in everyday life with the retrieval of merchandise from retail store shelves. Well, Karen Levitt of Locust Robotics, what a great conversation about gamification as a strategy for increasing worker productivity in warehouses and elsewhere. And also great to hear the story of Locust Robotics itself. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. That was my conversation with Karen Levitt of Locust Robotics, talking about the use of gamification in the warehouse. Our thanks to Locust for sponsoring this episode. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.